This semester we're studying the uh, the parables of Jesus, uh, particularly the ones in Luke's gospel. And so if you haven't been yet, um, you've you've missed out. It's been really a lot of fun. And um, if you want to, if you ever want to, uh, our uh, talks are up on podcast. And so you go into iTunes and search for RUF Tulsa. And um, as always, they're wildly popular these days. So, um, yeah, they're not. That's okay. Um, Let's pray. Tonight, uh, I want us particularly to pray for the victims and the families um, of September 11th, as we um, are mindful that that is today in history, and also for Devin Walker. So let's pray and ask God to be with us in this time. God, we do uh, come before you. We pray that uh, you would be with uh, the victims of the great tragedy uh, 11 years ago, and um, those who are still living who will forever be Uh, marked by that day. I pray that you would comfort their souls. I pray for the families of those who have lost loved ones in that tragedy. I pray that you would comfort them on this day and beyond. I pray for those who uh, really still struggle with what to make of uh, great tragedies in this world and the idea of a good and loving God. I pray that you would um, bring those people and bring their questions to the surface that they would feel a safe place to ask those and begin talking about those things. We pray for the many people of Middle Eastern descent who have been wrongly characterized and misjudged since then. We pray comfort for them. We would ask that you would be with us tonight as we look at you and we look at your word. Um, we're also mindful of Devin Walker and pray you continue to bring him healing. So be with us now. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read this text together. It's on the handout in front of you, Luke chapter 12. Um, we're going to read, it's a short passage today, which is great. Um, uh, verse 13, beginning verse 13 and down through verse 21. This is God's word. So someone in the crowd said to him, and him here is Jesus, teacher, Tell my brother to to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to the man, Man, who made me judge, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The sins of God's word, uh, we pray that he would add his blessing to it. Well, it it began in seventh grade. I was in Amarillo, Texas, where uh, where my mom grew up and still has lots of family there. And I had traveled to Amarillo to go on a trip with my cousins. Um, they were part of a Young Life program at their high school, and we were, about to, uh, we were about to leave to go out to California to one of these Young Life summer camps. 
And I woke up the morning before, we're supposed to live on a Saturday, I woke up on a Friday morning and my legs, my hip joints were frozen. They, they wouldn't move. I couldn't walk. There was this excruciating pain in them and then my joints began to swell up throughout the course of that day. And so my parents took me to the hospital and for the next five days I sat in the hospital with traction hooked up to my legs and they were taking blood tests and running all sorts of sample tests on on this fluid coming out of my joints. And after five or six days, I got released from the hospital, and they they really never knew what happened. Um, But one thing the doctor did say is that from that point forward, I could no longer play contact sports or sports that required any sort of impact, basketball or baseball or football, things of that nature, which, looking back at uh, my my stature, that was probably uh, God's blessing. But um, so I began to play golf. And um, so in seventh grade, uh, that summer, I took up golf and began to play a lot. And um, I really got pretty good pretty quick. And by ninth grade, I played my first round of golf for money. Um, You see at the country club that my parents lived across from, the golf course, um, there was a group of older men, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, who played every Wednesday for money. And so... Um, I don't know why they let me play with them, probably because I came with money, and they were like, well, we'll, we'll take that money. Um, but they let me play with them, and I played my first round of golf for money by the, when I was in ninth grade. Summer after my sophomore year, um, I was playing eight rounds of golf a week for money. Um, the gambling thing had gotten me, and I was winning. I wasn't winning all the time, but... Every time I went out, I could either basically win $100 or lose $100. I continued to do that for the next three years of high school um, during the summers. And after I would get in from playing golf, um, I would sit around with these middle-aged men, and um, we would shoot craps in in the 19th hole, right, in the little thing afterward. And I would win or lose more money doing that. Um, I entered college, and I began to study finance. Um, Because I had become more or less consumed with this idea of making money, more and more money, this insatiable desire to have more of it. Um, I began, I continued playing golf for money. I began uh, betting on sports for money online, and I also knew a bookie and would um, bet illegally with him. When I turned 21, I basically went as fast as I could to a casino, lost $400 in the first two hours. Um, Traveled to Las Vegas, lost another $400. Um, Continued this until just through promises of promises to myself that I wouldn't keep doing this, that I wouldn't let this thing have me. And then I realized that I could invest in the stock market with the little money I had after graduation. And so I would. I would take that as a more kind of socially or maybe uh, church culturally acceptable means to gamble. And so I did that. Um, And then I met Sarah, and we had a a good discussion, as you might call it, um, about my uh, gambling. I'm very thankful for her. And I promised her that I would never go into a casino again. Um, But those thoughts uh, and the session with the stock market and all that stuff was still there, and I continued to kind of put my heart into that. Uh, December 2010, after my first semester of having worked here in RUF, um, I was driving down to Dallas for staff training where all the campus ministers get together and, and share their lives and we pray for each other and stuff. And on the way down there, uh, there was a huge Indian casino. And I stopped and I went in 
and I lost. I continued to Dallas for the week. Um, I came back and confessed to Sarah that I had done that. Um, again, promising her I would never do it again. I haven't been back to a casino, but really this story climaxes in last year, last fall. Um, the stock market thing still had me. And if you had seen me walking around campus last fall, I would most likely be looking at my phone, and you might be thinking, thinking oh, he's a pastor. He's probably reading the Bible, or he's maybe praying for someone. What I was doing was um, reading stock quotes, and I was reading news stories about companies that we had the little money that we have invested in. My life had become utterly consumed with these things, leading to the point where um, last December um, I made a completely uh, foolish and a decision to uh, make this huge financial decision on behalf of our family, except I made it by myself. And I sat there utterly alone in front of my computer making one of the biggest financial decisions that the Corbin family has ever made. And I tell you that not because I'm proud of it, because I'm not. Um, I'm certainly not at all. I tell you that because there's a man in this story whose possessions had him. And who gets caught up in this idea of finding or trying to find his life in what he has. And I get that. I understand the impulse this man has. And I want to tell you on the front end that it is not where life is found. And we're going to see Jesus say as much as he um, addresses this parable and as he talks through it. But before we get to the parable, we need to look at what's happening in the beginning of this passage. In verse 13, there's a man, it just says a man from the audience or a man from the crowd, comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi or teacher, tell my brother to, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, presumably, the, the father or whoever had already passed away, and they're sitting on this inheritance. Back then, most likely would have included land and more kind of fixed, permanent assets than uh, something that's more easily transferable today. And so this man comes to Jesus, who had been identified as a teacher and a rabbi, and tells him to divide this, which isn't actually a crazy request in that day, because the rabbis, the teachers, were supposed to be knowledgeable about God's word. They were supposed to be able to provide an informed and wise decision on what people should do. But Jesus wasn't that kind of teacher. He wasn't that kind of rabbi. He didn't come to just conform himself to this kind of preset mold of this uh, spiritual community back then um, around the temple and the synagogue. He had not come to just take demands from people like this man is demanding him. The word arbitrator there literally says means divider. And you see, Jesus didn't come to divide people. He wasn't simply content with letting this man order him around saying, divide me from my brother. Essentially, I don't care anything else about my brother and my relationship with him. Just give me my money so that I can leave. I am done with that relationship. Let me go. And Jesus doesn't do that. And instead, he drops down to verse 15, and he drops a bomb on this guy. But if you'll notice, not just on that guy, he says, and he, said, he turned and said to them, and we can well read that as us, he says, take care, or literally see, keep your eyes open and be on your guard against all covetousness, which that is a very fancy word for just an inordinate desire for riches. 
Don't be consumed like I was in covetousness and wanting more and more. Be on guard against that. And then he says this paralyzing line. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, in Greek, and this isn't just to show that I taught Greek, but it's important here that I, I didn't teach Greek, I took Greek. Um, in Greek, what this says is a very short sentence. It says, not in abundance his life is. And that's, in word order in Greek is everything. He's saying, not in abundance is his life found. Okay, let's hang on to that for just a second. So before we jump into the parable, let me just kind of phrase a question for us as we move through this. It's a question that you've got to answer at some point in your life, and I hope you'll begin to answer now. What are you living for? Not what are you going to tell someone in a scholarship application or interview, or what you're going to tell a prospective employer. Like, what actually motivates you? Why do you get up? Why are you here at TU studying as hard as you are to get a degree? Who are you living for? Why are you doing what you're doing? What is motivating you? What is your goal? Quite frankly, some of you are here and are in the major that you're in because your parents looked out and said, you need to make X amount of money, and in order to do that, you need to do one of these things. And they gave you a list, and you got to pick from it. And here you are. You're just kind of doing it, and you're taking the classes that they wanted you to take. Others of you are determined to not grow up or, you know, spend the rest of your life the way that you grew up, you know, without things, Um, always having to look at your friends who had more. And so you've determined, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to make tons of money so that I don't have to live like that, so that my family doesn't have to be like that. And you're motivated in that direction and by those things. Others of you still just look out. And quite frankly, you want just the newest and the cutest and the best of everything you see. And you want the cutest clothes. And you want the best technology. And you want that to the point that you will basically do anything for it. So you're living toward that end and you're pursuing a career that can get you those things. And I just simply want to say here on the front end that if our conception of what it means to be content or joyful or to live, as Jesus would say, or to have life, is bound up in having possessions, in having stuff or having enough of stuff, then Jesus is saying to us tonight that you you can and never will truly live. You cannot truly live if, if that is your motivation, if that is what you're living for. You will never find the kind of life that he has come to give you. And it won't work for me either. And I'm having to learn that. Failure by failure. So in this parable, Jesus shows us that a man has a great problem. He has many possessions. And he shows us this man's problem only to reveal the heart of the man and the real problem which lurks beneath the surface. So let's look at this man's abundant possessions in verse 16 if you want to follow along. We see two things right off the bat um, that we really need to pay attention to. Um, you don't, we don't catch this in English, and, but what it says is that the land of a man who is rich produced abundant crops. The, the land, and there's a little like parenthetical phrase, of a man who is rich produced abundant crops. So two things about that. 
The man is rich before this bumper crop happens. He is already rich. And this is his land, but he is already rich. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that this verse, the way it's set up, is to clearly show us that it is the land that brings forth this crop and not the man. The man presumably didn't do anything for this. Now, he may have planted or you know, put the seed out there, but the clear thrust and emphasis of this verse is that the land brought forth the crop and the abundant crop. His own efforts did nothing that we know of to move toward acquiring this great wealth. It was a blessing. It was a gift. It was something over and above a normal crop. And so thus he is faced with this question of asking himself, so what do I do with this stuff that I have not earned? Like, I haven't done anything for this abundance. What do I do with it? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to to think of this man having received grace. As we think about that word in terms of the Bible, grace is simply an undeserved gift. It's an unmerited favor of some sort. Now we think of God's grace as he offers that in Jesus. But this man has literally received grace, an undeserved gift. And it points us to the point where we ask, or he's asking, what do I do with this? And that's precisely what happens. So we see his problem then in verse 17. He realizes that he has a problem, which is, you know, it's like a first world problem, right? (laughs) He's got too much. It's more like a situation that he's in. Um, And it says that he was uh, debating with himself or that he thought. Literally, it's saying the, the way that word is used, that he was having this ongoing discussion in his mind. It's a continuous past. It's, it wasn't just like, you know, I thought about it for a second. Like, he had been thinking about this, this internal debate going on in his mind. What am I going to do with this? And as far as we know, there's no real thought ever along the way of him thinking, you know what? I'm already rich. I don't need any of this that I have. He's only considering, what do I do with this bounty that I have? It's mine. What do I do with it? What do I do? Uh, Ambrose, who was an early um, church kind of father figure in the 4th century, he looks up at this verse and he says that there is ample storage available in the mouths of the needy. That this man is only considering, how do I preserve for myself all of this that I've been given? And Ambrose is saying, there's plenty of places for you to put that. Just look around you. There are people who need your abundance, who could use this wealth and this crop that you have received. You see, the Bible gives us reasons to work. It says we're created to work. It's dignifying for us to work and to go out and to produce things and to be creative in that. We're, we, you were created for that. You were not created to mooch off your parents for the rest of your life, and I would even say not really much past college. That's not what you're you're created to go out and make meaningful use of the time and talents that you have. But you're also created to work so you can provide for yourself and provide if you have a family for a family. But also we're to work, and the Bible says in, in Ephesians 4, that we're to work to give to those in need. That as a Christian, there is an impulse in your heart which says, you know, I've got more than I need. And I need to look at those around me who may not. And there needs to be that thought of, I should consider giving some of this away and and even doing that. But this man, 
He doesn't do any of that. And we just want to think in our hearts like, this man is such a jerk. He's so evil. He's so cruel. He's so selfish. Um, but we're not all that different, right? Um, I don't. I have a. I have income now. We have income. It's hard to think about giving money away. There's lots of things that you know. We there's many things we need, and there's a lot of things that we want. Um, and it's hard. I'll tell you right now, it's hard. I know some of you are thinking, right, or know, right when you graduate, you're going to make seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you'll be thinking, then once I get there, then I'll have just tons of money to give away. That's actually true. You will be able to give tons of money away, but will you? There becomes this question of, will I actually do what I think right now that I want to do and say that I will do? But perhaps the most interesting thing that we see with this man who's having this debate is that he's having it with himself. He's dialoguing with himself. Now, let's think about this in that culture. It was a very, very... In our American culture, that's not all that crazy. But for back then, this highly community, everything was a communal thing. They lived in community. They made decisions in community. For heaven's sakes... The, the leading men of the cities would sit in the gates. I mean, literally, like there would be a, because they were old cities, there would be a real gate that people would come in and out of, and the rest of it would just be a wall. And the businessmen, the rich people in the city, they would sit in those gates and talk to each other about potential business deals and things they were thinking about doing. To the point to where, like, if someone actually introduced an answer into the question you asked, that was kind of like seen unfavorable. That so much was valued just this dialogue between others that. It's astounding that this passage says this man was debating by himself. The point is this, that anybody in the situation this man is in is not going to make a big decision by himself, and yet he is here dialoguing with himself. So in college, um, some of you have already made some big decisions. Some of you are seniors and you're having to make good decisions for your future. Others of you, those things are coming. Some of you have made other big decisions in other ways. The questions that you will be looking at are things like, who am I going to date? What kind of people am I going to think about you know, being in romantic relationships with? What kind of friends am I going to make? What am I going to do vocationally? Um, where am I going to live? Am I going to take my, my parents and the faith they raised me in? And is it going to become my own or am I going to depart from it? Where will you spend your time? All these things are big questions. And it's no surprise then that many of us walk around with tremendous loads of anxiety and angst over all sorts of decisions in our life. Why? Because we seek to make these things alone. We don't, we don't talk about these things. We don't ask those people around us or people wiser than us what we ought to do. Because you've been told, and I've been told my whole life, that you're able and you're smart and you can make great things. You can change the world. You can do all these things. And with that sort of pressure, how could you ever think, I'm going to need others to come and help me make day-to-day decisions? Right? And so you walk around with this tremendous burden of having to make every decision about every aspect in your life and to not fail at it. And so some of you, I can sit across from you and I can see it in your eyes. And some of you, I can see it in your tears. 
as you're so torn with this idea of just, just being paralyzed by not knowing what you ought to do. You've by and large gone about this independently. And this supposed independence that our culture values oftentimes leads us, like that man, into isolation, into loneliness, into fear. Uh, We used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there was um, a single girl there who was part of our community group. And the community group leader would tell a story about how she was about to make a a decision on a purchase. She was uh, about to go buy a futon for her apartment or a house or something. And she came and talked to our community group leader and said, do you think I ought to buy this futon? And him, and he was an older man, and knowing that oftentimes futons aren't like the best piece of furniture, right? Um, that even though they're really soft on the front end, after like you know, 10 nights sleep on there, it kind of gets a little thinner and you're feeling bars in your back. Um, him, armed with that knowledge, looks at her and says, uh, you might not spend $300 on that. Let's save up another month or something and get us something a little nicer. Now, this wasn't a life-changing decision for her. But the point is this, that that she wasn't foolish enough to think that she had all the wealth of information and all of the, the research that she needed to make every decision on her own. And I just want to free you up to say this. Neither do you. Neither do you. Neither do I. Neither do me and Sarah even as a, as a couple. We have to, and often we will ask other people who are wiser and older than us, what should we do here? We're not meant to live alone. We're not meant to... Be isolated. I know that. I know that how because I sat there 10 feet away from my wife and made this huge financial decision in utter isolation. And it ended up being a very hurtful thing for me and for her and for us. It was not good. There was not life to be had in that. Jesus promises something better. So what does a man do? How does he propose? What does he propose to himself? What sort of plan? So he's had this dialogue with himself, and we see in verse 8, 10 that he, he has decided on what he's going to do. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, I'm thinking at this point that this guy lives in midtown Tulsa because he's got a house, but he wants to tear it down and build a new house on that old house lot. Right? The houses are doing that all around us in Brookside. And I know that um, when we bought our house, our, all the neighbors around us were secretly hoping that that's exactly what was going to happen, y'all, because we bought an ugly house. <laughs> it was really ugly. Um, it needed a lot of work. And I know they were just like, oh gosh, be a teardown, be a teardown. But their worst fear came true when a pastor bought it, right? And we've got no money. And so it's like, well, not only are we keeping it, we're actually going to do the work ourselves. Um, so, you know, there's junk and tools around the yard and stuff. Um, So this guy lives in Midtown, and uh, he's thinking, I've got this thing. I've got these goods. What will I do? Oh, I know. I'll tear down my old ones because they're not big enough. And I'll I'll build bigger barns. I'll build new ones. That's what I need. I need that. And the utter striking nature of his aloneness comes into full view in this verse. Listen to how many eyes and mys are going on. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and 
it doesn't say this in, in the English, but in Greek, I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then the next verse, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. This man is utterly alone. He's utterly isolated. You see, in one sense, this man has arrived. He has everything that he needs or that he thinks he needs. He's built his barns for tremendous, uh, for these tremendous crops and the possessions that he has. And if this were a movie, at this point, the camera would pan in on him as he's standing, you know, like on his wraparound porch on some hill with the breeze blowing through his Brad Pitt long hair. You know, he'd be sitting there and he'd be looking out on his vast resources and his land. And at this point, what happens, the, cam- the camera would begin to pan out and show his huge house. And it would start to go this way. And it would show this huge party that he's having with all of his friends. It was singing and dancing and good food and good drink. He'd be celebrating this, this crop and this blessing with his friends and his neighbors. And that's just not what we see at all. What we see at all, he's utterly alone. His only audience we see in this passage is his own soul. Soul, we have ample goods. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. He's talking to himself. We next see God's provocation. God... We find that in the midst of this man's earthly loneliness, he is not alone at all. Verse 20, God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? Luke picks one of the strongest words here for this man. He is a fool. God looks at him and says, you are a fool. You are ignorant. What have you done? The verb used for is required is a legal financial word, meaning that this man's soul has been on loan. And now it's required. It's required to be paid back. See, at the beginning, if we remember, his, these goods were a gift. They were something that had been given to him or loaned to him almost to see what he would do with them. He had received grace. And now it is clear from this as God looks at him. He says, buddy, not only were those goods given to you as a gift, but your very soul is not yours. It has been given to you on loan. What will you do with it? How have you lived? How have you spent your days? And the parable ends open-ended. And we, we don't know what happened with this man. Jesus concludes and says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And in hearing this, the petitioner from the crowd is pressed to affirm this question. I want you to think about this. That the real problem is not the division of the inheritance. You can imagine this guy at the beginning who's realizing, Oh my gosh, that's not the issue here. That's not the problem. The real problem is a will to live and to serve yourself rather than to serve God. Is a will and desire to live utterly for what you want and what you think is best and what you have decided is best 
rather than what God has told us is best and where God has told us we can find life and joy and lasting happiness. So I'll ask the same question again. It's facing listeners of this story that faces us. For whom and for what do you live? Is your resume that important? Is grad school that important? Is it that important? It may be important, but is it that important? Is your parents' approval that important? Is others' approval that important? Are your possessions that important? The man or the passage shows a man who thought he knew the way to life and who lived utterly for himself and, as it turns out, by himself. Don't think that you can outsmart this system. You can't. Come and talk to me. I'll tell you, you can't. I've tried. It doesn't work. And you realize that your very life is a gift from God. And then you realize that the very air that you breathe is from God. That it is gracious of God to give us a world where we can live in this manner. And who gives us creation that we can enjoy. And who gives us people who are creative and who can create art of tremendous beauty. Which we can behold and appreciate and find ourselves engrossed in. And God gives us people and relationships that literally make us come alive. And you see, God then gives a gift of all gifts. Life of all lives in that He looks out in love upon people who have turned utterly away from Him and who have run the other direction. And God looks and says, no, you are not meant to live that way. There is not life out there. I know you think there is. I know you think that will make you happy, but it won't. And in our utter running the other way, He looks and says, come back to me. You don't deserve to have me, but I, but I want you. I love you so much that I am going to give everything necessary to bring you back to me, even at the cost of my own son, because I love you. Come back to me. You will only know life in me. And immediately after this parable, Jesus turns to his disciples And he says these words, which I think are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. As if Jesus looks into the hearts of those who follow him and say, I know this is hard to get. I know that this makes you anxious to think about giving up those things and living for me and finding your life in me above everything else. And so Jesus turns to them and gives these words of provision. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more precious, is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, these birds, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In the, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you so anxious about the rest? 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You can see Jesus speaking so tenderly to them and saying, I want you to get this. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to live in your own mind. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God, I pray that you would help us to lay up our treasure where it will not be destroyed. I pray that our lives would consist in more than our possessions. And that you would move us toward a place of trusting you in that. We can trust that you love us that much because you have given us your son Jesus to show us that. To buy us back from our sin and our wandering away. And bring us back into your kingdom. We pray that you would apply that to our hearts now even as we sing this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.